Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the DLC Drop Podcast. Today it's my pleasure to welcome Cisco Garrido. He is a senior graphic designer with AOE Creative. He's going to talk about his challenging start in Venezuela, escaping to Panama, and then Spain. He's going to give a lot of advice to aspiring graphic designers of how to go from freelance to full-time, and some interesting insights on his psychological approach to design. Let's talk to Cisco. Drop in the untold stories of industry leaders, influencers, and insights on future innovation. I'm John Davidson, and this is the DLC Drop Podcast. All right, I'm excited about this episode of the DLC Drop Podcast. It's my pleasure to welcome Cisco Garrida. Welcome to the podcast, my friend. Hey, thank you very much. I'm very excited to be here. Awesome. I'm excited to have you too. So just to give a little background for the audience, the way that Cisco and I met was through former guest on the DLC Drop podcast, Simon of AOE Creative. And Cisco has been working for AOE Creative as a senior graphic designer for quite some time now. And he's done amazing things from a design perspective in the esports space. So... Cisco, why don't you just start first? Give us an overview of what you're doing right now with AOE Creative. Oh, that's very exciting. So, as you mentioned previously, I'm a senior graphic designer for for AOE Creative, and part of that just involves working with really cool things that most gamers are familiar with. We're currently working with OWL, that's the Overwatch League, and also the Call of Duty League. But we also have done, you know, one-shot projects with other companies as well like lego and also funny or die so there's a little bit of everything it's it's very fun actually it's very interesting so so yeah it's yeah that's great so what are the type of roles that you're playing with these clients obviously you know a company like owl there's all sorts of different things lego you know seems like infinite possibilities how you might work as an agency or designer what are the types of projects that you're doing personally well, personally, that's very interesting that you brought that up. Personally, I'm more of a, I would say like long-term project graphic designer. Mm-hmm. So usually depending on like our skills or what we're better at, we're going to be assigned to like different projects under like different stakeholders and whatnot. I usually perform better long-term projects that kind of require, you know, getting to know the client and getting to know the project itself. And mostly I, I work with branding that means Mm -hmm. you know there's a lot of like work around designing logos and social media assets and look and feels and website design on the front end so it's a little bit of everything but that's great yeah yeah so now today you're with you have a leadership position with one of the leading agencies in the esports space but you started in venezuela right and so you have this correct very amazing story of persevering, overcoming a lot of challenges. And so I'd love for you to share a little bit of what that path has been like from Venezuela to Panama to Spain, where you are today. It's, it's been a bit of a crazy path, actually. <laughs> I started working on it around 2013. I was doing a lot of cheap graphic freelance design work. So I was, you know, an amateur on the scene. And I realized I had a chance well, to, to hone something that could help me sustain myself what I was in college and maybe hopefully assist my family. 
by that time I got involved with a nonprofit foundation. They focus on workshops and seminars about art therapy, art psychology, and psychoanalysis. And that was like fascinating to me. I met my mentor there. He was the head honcho at the foundation and he taught me a lot about art psychology and pretty much all I know about the basics of, of graphic design in and of itself. And to give you a little bit of context, those were probably among the worst years for my country. The economy was crashing, insecurity was rampart. You know, half of the people was scrapping to, to get food for their homes while the other half were protesting against the government and whatnot. So that kind of like heavily impacted my med school years, which was a career I was studying at that time. So mm -hmm. even though I was very, it was like a really good school, everything was upside down because of the crisis. So I started growing more passionate about art psychology and the foundation and, and, and freelancing on the side because I was able to actually, you know, you know, make some money and, and help my family, help myself, you know, do something and, and push things forwards. So, so I decided to like focus entirely on that and on the foundation itself. It was, I was really learning a lot and my life was like coming all together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I love running seminars and just, just learning more about it and being involved with it. It was, it was, it was, it was great. It was fantastic. But unfortunately, you know, my mentor and, and, and the head honcho of the foundation passed away very early on, sadly, mm. mostly because of negligence on the health sector part. You know, he was asthmatic, uh, but also he was a stress smoker. So he had some, you know, issues with that and they weren't able to 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 help him when when he was having like a like a crisis a respiratory complication and he had he passed away it was it was really sad because since he was a back backbone of the organization you know things just just fell apart from then on and the foundation could no longer stand it on its own um yeah. so I, I i realized that i really didn't have much to be there for you know mm -hmm. as, as in the country and I had to like figure out a new route of life. You know, I still needed to assist my, my family. I felt like that was, you know, my duty. And I also kind of wanted to have uh, a better life, you know? So I, I thought about leaving the country and I put the work on it and I left for Panama. That would be on like, I think that was 2015 or whatnot. The DLC Drop podcast is sponsored by Ice Shaker. I've been a huge fan of this brand for the past few years, ever since I met founder, Chris Gronkowski. What I love about this product is the brand story, the functionality, and the customization. iShaker is a Shark Tank company invested in by Mark Cuban and Alex Rodriguez, owned by NFL players Rob Gronkowski and Chris Gronkowski. I love using my iShaker anytime I'm driving to the podcast studio, I'm going skateboarding, or I'm at the gym. No matter what I'm doing, it just does a great job of keeping my drinks hot or cold. The customization for Ice Shaker is something that's super unique. You can get any name, just about any logo engraved onto your Ice Shaker and delivered to you within just three to five business days. Get your own DLC Drop branded Ice Shaker at icesaker.com forward slash DLC Drop. Save 20% on all Ice Shaker products with the discount code DLC Drop. After a couple what years, was it? What was it that took you to Panama? Or, Did you have family there? Were Were there job opportunities? What, what, why Panama than somewhere else? Well, the thing with Panama is that it's very close to the country. It's dollarized, which is always a plus. 
Yeah. Because, you know, given the, the industry and whatnot, that's, that's always good. And it's not too expensive, actually. It's, it's fairly uh, cheap in, in a lot of good ways. And, you know, there's a lot of Venezuelans living there. I didn't know, you know, I, I didn't have any family there, but, you know, I knew some people that was able to accommodate me and, and help me and guide me in that process. So it was very helpful. Yep. And how long were you in Panama? I was in Panama for about two years. And what age was this, or what age were you, and how long ago was this? I think this was around 2015, 2016. I was probably on on my on my early twenties. Got it. Yeah, so yeah, so you're sure. basically in a place where you're going to school. Medical school is more of a long term proposition because you're not making money while you're in medical school. School. So you're Correct. you're supporting yourself with graphic design. You fall in love with that. You find a mentor who really inspires you and gives you opportunities, but then he tragically passes away. You are wondering what you're going to do next, so you move to Panama. And what happened in your from a career perspective once you arrived in that country? In in Panama, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. So the thing with going outside of the country is that it was not so much a choice of getting a better life it was a choice of finding a way a, a place that i could work in peace because at that point mm. all i wanted to do really was just grind hard work and earn money save money go back to my country and then you know replay things from there on right yeah because uh, the thing is at that time in minnesota there was a lot of like issues with the basic services that means internet and also power so we oh, would go yeah. a few days without yeah we would go a few days without having any you know power basically and and that would complicate things a lot for my projects and clients and, and any you know, oh, yeah. connections that i would have you know yeah i can only imagine you're working with say an agency like aoe in the states who are looking for a talented graphic designer and in today's global internet world right that's one of the great things is that doesn't matter where you live we can collaborate especially when you're you're doing digital art but my goodness when the power is out in your home or in your city boy that's gonna be really tough as a freelancer because reliability is a really big thing that these agencies are looking for in vendors right Correct. You basically cease to exist, and that is a huge negative in the eyes of anyone that invests, you know, money on your services or on you, you know, as a professional. Yeah. So what was so? I know that you're working with with AOE and with Simon part of that time. How are you able to either convince them to continue working with you because you're working through these challenges, or or what was their response that has enabled you to? continue working with them to this very day? That is a really good question because at that time I came back from Panama after like securing some really good personal projects in my country. Mm-hmm. And that's where like the worst power crisis starting appearing pretty much out of the blue. And at that time I had started working with, with AOE from them. And obviously that really negatively impact, you know, my, my workflow with them. But for some reason they were, very, very accepting of it. They understood, you know, my situation. They gave me a chance to really put on the work. Like they knew that, you know, it was not my fault. Like it was something outside of my hands. Sure. But they also knew that I was putting in the work that I was putting out, had good results and whatnot. So I I guess that would be, but honestly, that's one of the reasons why I'm like really grateful to them, honestly, for giving me that chance and being that patient. (laughs) 
because anyone else was probably being like hey man this is not working out i understand your situation but this is not good for you know us so we should part ways and, and, and that's it and you know there's nothing wrong with that but yeah there were different yeah that's incredible you know it's priceless when you you meet people who are willing to look past the spreadsheet or the workflow <laughs> and really see the human aspect of it and obviously i'm sure that your talent your immense talent played a lot in saying hey this guy's somebody we're going to work with regardless of the challenges so help me understand so you go back to to venezuela and you're you're dealing with these you know tremendous issues with with power and the economy and these other things how long were you in venezuela before you moved away once again about two about a year and a half maybe two years because after i found you know aoe i was able to to move to spain because they they supported me in that sense they were like listen if you have plans to move to another country you know we can help you i would not that's perfectly fine and and yeah i was able to 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 move to spain um spain being another country that also it's, it's a little bit far further than than panama to venezuela mm-hmm. but you know it's on a similar price bracket and there's also a lot of venezuelans here so i met some friends that that live here that could also help me come here and get accommodated so that's a huge plus wonderful and you're in spain at this very moment right while we're recording uh, this is, podcast that is correct happily working awesome and how long have you been in spain now i've been in spain for around three and a half years great well so you thank you so much for taking through that inspiring story and you know one of the things i'd really like to dig into here is where your launch put up launch pad opportunity was from what i understand you're a big league of legends fan and so <laughs> a lot of your fandom influenced your art tell us about the flashcards that you were making for league and also how that led to a logo design opportunity with a significant org oh that is that is crazy that was that probably was back in 2012 i think one of my friends that i used to play a lot of league of legends with senior Grimm, he was like very passionate about like theory crafting and making guides and whatnot and he wanted us to make guides for a third-party website that was mostly news and resources called surrender 20. at that time it was one of the biggest sources of league of legends content and was very popular he he got us to actually make content for for that website and we got to like meet everyone involved on 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 the side and whatnot but i found myself spending more time doing graphic design than actually making guides for the side and oh, funny. is that I because kinda... of your enjoyment of graphic design and you just like enjoyed Absolutely. the design <laughs> yeah you know sometimes i think i think it's interesting and in, in my work i do a number of different things and i find myself obviously doing more of what i enjoy and that's that's typically kind of a good it's it's a good way to lead yourself into what you want to pursue as a career is what am i naturally doing right yeah Mm -hmm. yeah it is i found myself making a new logo for the side you know making cool pamphlets for for events and and meetups with with people it was fantastic and and you know the community at the time was like so warm uh towards everything so welcoming towards you know anything that that we put out and it was was really fun but that really gave me an opportunity to put a step into the esports scene as a graphic designer Mm -hmm. because then i you know started meeting people that was interested on getting graphic designers and obviously would look for sources like pages that would put up content you know related to a game right so I remember that I then worked for a page called Low Class that was basically 
like a side where you could like learn a lot about the game and then you had someone that could put graphics that educate people on what the game is and the mechanics and whatnot so i was like really down my alley yeah you know i I, tell me how valuable it was to have projects that were actually done inside of the industry to get more jobs inside the industry and the reason why i ask that question i always say a case study is always more powerful than an idea and sometimes you can have an idea and you tell people hey i want to do this or i've done this in this other industry but they're there's that either whether you're taking a chance or you're doing spec work or you're doing a project giving somebody a special deal to get that case study opportunity talk a little about the value of that and then also how aspiring designers can do that themselves that's very interesting you mentioned it because i think that graphic design as a career is one of those careers that don't rely too much on your credentials and experience but rather on what you can put out so you need a presentation card you need something that tells anyone interested on your services hey this is what i do this is me this is how i work and then you you do the rest of the job by just working on that right so i i i really encourage people that if if there's anything that you take fun of and there's anything that you're interested in do content for it do go crazy have fun like do things that are important matter to you because that will show a lot of passion yeah and a lot of agencies or or groups or or people seeking for 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 works like this they want people that is like passionate and committed to you know those industries that's right i have a little bit of experience in the design industry uh, as a business manager running projects being a producer things like that i'm not very artistic but i am (laughs) familiar with the design process and how to run a business around it one thing that i've experienced there's a difference between uh, a personal project let's 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 say league of legends right so let's say you do a project that's not paid by anybody but you just utilize league ip and you make a animation or an illustration there could be respect around oh i see your talent i see your level of skill things like that but there's another level of interest from an agency or a potential client when it's a paid project when it's like yeah league of legends or riot hired me to do this that's a big difference now nobody has to know how much they paid you right and so right while we're not advocating here for designers to work for cheap or to take less than market value, share a little bit about the process that you found being successful to go from, I can't get these big budgets yet, to now being where you are today. Well, that, that's the thing. It all comes down to like valuing your work and properly understanding the, the value of, that you have as a worker and, and that your work has as a worker. Because it's not just like, oh, I'm not going to accept anything that I don't get paid for. Because that's completely valid position to have. But also think about the opportunities that something can get you, the learning opportunities that people that you can meet. And then kind of think if that has value to you. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, so, so kind of like put that in a balance and think, is this worth taking? Obviously, a lot of the times you need to put food on the table right. and that in time, time investment is just not worth and that's perfectly fine. But if you're in a position where, you know, you're getting some, some works and you have some free time, 
it would be wise to spend that time on on things that may not you know remunerate you economically as much right but they can like spring you further to other bigger better projects that's right yeah there's more than just one type of value right there's more than just financial value correct yes. now also i'd love to get your insight on how designers can avoid being taken advantage of and the the reason i uh ask this question is i'm familiar in this space that a lot of people will go to designers and say hey all the right people are going to see it or i'll get budget on the next one or this that and the other how can a designer make sure that they are getting the value you know that non-financial value when it's there but also making sure that they're not getting taken advantage of by people who are really just wanting free work at the end of the day. I think a lot of it comes or stems from not taking things personal, mm. understanding that it's not so much that people take advantage of you because they want to be evil, they want to be greedy. You know, sometimes people just want the best for the project with a minimum budget. Mm-hmm. And even though they're going to be like at, at ethically questionable moves from their side, that's probably what they're gonna do, and you know that's that's how things are. So, I think one of the best things to like grow a thick skin to dad and like kind of like train how to like see things from afar mm-hmm. is to like not take things personally. And also, I would say that it's very important for you to be comfortable with your money talks. Yeah. A lot of the issues that I see with you know aspiring designers or even junior designers is that they need to be as comfortable with their money talks as they are like talking about their work, you know, uh, what they can do, because it's pretty much the same. Like there's this perception that, you know, the money you earn and the work you do is two separate things when it's actually the the same. Like, like you you put work and you get money and vice versa in other cases. So it's it's pretty much the same thing. So I, I think it's been important that you grow confident on asking the right amounts. And if you don't know what those amounts are, you can ask questions like ask. I I think that's also like another very important thing. I don't think anyone will think less of you or they're going to consider you to be less experienced if you ask a lot of questions. Just make sure you ask the right questions. Like if you don't know how much you charge for something, you can go ahead and ask something like, you know, what? What, how do we master success for this project, for example, right? And then yeah. you can have like a, a better idea on like what this project kind of moves or pushes, and then you can like then, you know, give it a right value and then charge properly for it if, if you're having issues with that. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Oftentimes, in my experience, when when designers have an opportunity to raise their rates is when they experience a project that has a bigger budget, right? And it's like, Correct. oh, yeah oh, you're paying for this. And it kind of opens your mind to this whole situation. In fact, I had a past experience where the student I was working with was doing a job for an agency. And so we put in our bid, which we had very low overhead. We were a small boutique studio. And so we we didn't need a lot. And we we weren't yet at these really big budgets. Well, the agency said, hey, I'm going to bring up your bid so that it's the same as everybody else's so that as the client is deciding, they're not making the decision based on uh, budget alone, right? But they're making it based on the style of the work, the process, the talent, etc. Well, it's possible one of the other studios had their budgets decreased, but ours were dramatically increased. And in that moment, we said, oh there's companies wow. paying this amount of money and yeah. so then we were able to adapt right what is right. your yes a, another thing i would just give a key to the audience here is it's also so important to retain your value as a designer and it's even more important 
important and difficult because digital art is not tangible, right? And Correct. so a lot of people, especially if they're not designers themselves, they don't know how to assign a value. They're just like, oh, it's just time, right? Or everything is the same or or they don't understand why this is x amount of dollars and this is 3x right (laughs) amount of dollars so one thing that i would give people advice on aspiring designers is if you do need to discount your services to take advantage of an opportunity that's going to build your portfolio all these things always show the discount show the full cost right and have a conversation with the client saying hey I really value this project. I'm excited to work on it. It's going to be fun for me, et cetera. So let's say $10,000, for example. So this $10,000 project, I'm going to give you a $3,000 discount on it. And rather than just saying, okay, it's seven grand. Because if you don't give them the full price and then express the the discount and the reason for it, they just discount you that three grand without you helping them understand that you're giving them a special deal. Right. Would you yes. agree with that or have a different approach? No, I perfectly agree with that. Now, I think it also bows down. This is something that a friend of mine, a really good friend of mine told me a long time ago. You should invest in people that invest in you. Mm. Um, you know, that says a lot about finding good clients that value your work, value your ethics, value your workflow. Because obviously you're going to find a lot of clients that, no, they're not bad people, but maybe they don't value what you do as much and you don't see too much opportunity from that. But you're going to find some really good um, apples out there. Not, not just clients, you know, maybe yeah. it could be just work partners or, you know, whatever. So I think it's very important to like value these people and keep them close to you at all times and, you know, invest with them, you know, invest in them, hold it, never sell it, basically. Yeah, I, I think you're right because it, it could be really tempting to take the the low budget project and especially as they're they're trying to beat you down for the cost of your services but one thing that i learned in my design suit experience we never had a low cost project that really ended up working out well and what i mean by that is if somebody values your services they're willing to pay for it and so when they're willing to pay for it they also see you as an expert and so they trust you more with your decisions and worst case scenario, if the project sucks, at least you're making a good amount of money, right? Yep. On the flip side, if you're doing this super low budget stuff, first of all, they clearly don't value you as an expert. Secondly, they're probably going to be more of a problem customer because the fact that they don't value you, they're going to be telling you more of what to do than asking it, you yeah. what to <laughs> recommend. And then yeah. the last thing I'll say here is... And then at the end of the day, the project sucks and you're not even getting paid much. <laughs> so it's correct. just... Yeah. It's, it's kind of a symptom of it. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Yes. Yeah. So I'd like to pivot here over to your approach to design because I, I think it's really interesting talking to Simon. Uh, he was really excited and sharing. You've got this very psychological, <laughs> cerebral approach to design. So why don't you share with us what that's I... all about? Well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't know if cerebral. I, I I like to see it as as humane, honestly. Okay. It, it's very it's very interesting learning about art therapy. You learn about this concept of meiotics, which is a method in psychodynamics that comes from ancient Greece, which is basically that by process of expressing ourselves, we can also kind of heal wounds and kind of you know 
better ourselves in a way. And and, and that kind of has something to do with with the mirror stage on, on psychoanalysis, which also, you know, talks about how an infant is 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 you know ready to recognize himself outside the scope of things by just you know looking himself in the mirror mm-hmm. and to all this there's a quote that i cannot remember who said it first but it's, it was something that we cannot really create things as a whole we can only recreate things right oh, like, we, we can only make things based on our experiences you know so all all that we can express all that we can put out there is based on all of our experiences put you know together in our lives so you take something like that and then ponder you know in 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 graphic design that the opposite may be also true you know that if you design something and you put it out there then it must mean something to a specific subset of people of xyz you know experiences and then you think about it and and well, what is people of XYZ experiences? That's what you call a marketing persona. So basically, if you take someone with a specific sad subset of like experiences and ideas, you can design and make things with intent to them, things that can mm. speak their language, to things that they can relate, things that they can understand. So it's it's really not about analyzing anyone more so than it is gaining a better understanding of people and expression of form and function basically you know it's always keeping it very humane in that sense can you give us an example of a project where you took that approach to kind of give a a tangible view of that i think most projects that i do i always try to to consider that especially when it comes to color because sometimes shapes and and the relation between shapes and and visual ideas tend to be really dependent on what the trends are right Mm -hmm. and that's mostly what people are gonna like you know kind of bow down to but when it comes to color you have a weird amount of freedom where you can like really think about what these combination of color palettes and whatnot can like mean to a specific subset of people, right? So, so when it comes to that, I, I always try to to keep keep that in mind, because like as I was saying, you, you keep things humane, you you keep things thinking about the person and and who's going to consume this product or who's going to like consume the service, and and then you get to design a work that hopefully means something, no matter how insignificant, from conveying a sense of security or a good quality household product to maybe portraying a historical moment in an advertisement for a campaign in a museum or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and and to me, that's fascinating, you know? Yeah. The, the sign is, 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 is fascinating, honestly. Well, I think what's so interesting, like I said, I, I'm not a designer myself, but I have a, a peek inside of the world a couple times with some jobs. And it's so interesting how deep the meaning of colors is in color theory and i think it's the same in fonts too right like uh, people who really know typography each font has a very specific meaning there's an industry that they're associated with a lot of times i'll give people advice when they're going to create a logo or something is look at the logos and colors of other companies in that industry to see what is associated with it right just cognitively what are some of the ways that you you approach uniquely using colors and and fonts that have meaning in your work 
Well, that's very interesting. When it comes to, to, to colors, mostly, you have to keep in mind at least three different contexts because it's not just one kind of way that you have to look at it and then just apply that formula forever. Mm-hmm. There's three like 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 basic concepts that kind of come back every now and then. The first like the context of the color within the society. That means like what the color means to a specific culture, right? Like if you are yeah. designing for a group of people, certain colors have certain meaning like for example how red color could have a lot of meaning in, in asian cultures as a symbol of luck but also you know uh, and then you have the what i would say would be like the objective context of like what the color means to a person objectively right and this would be what you call color bias for example like mm. black for example is a color that seemed very luxurious so you would have social context where black is seen as a color of death mourning whatever but on a more conscious context black means luxury so yeah it's very different right and then last word not least which i would say would be the most important would be the the unconscious context or the cognitive context and this is what i think wesley kandinsky was more obsessed about Mm -hmm. was that if you take color whatever that is, and you remove everything over it, you remove as many things as you can that, you know, you put over it, you know, you remove that social context, you remove that kind of context, you remove what it means to you, what it means to your aunt, you remove all those things. Mm -hmm. There is still a cognitive charge implicit to every color, every shape, everything that you see. So that means that the things that you see have an extrinsic meaning outside, you know, of, of your scope of things. So he devoted his entire life to studying that. And it, it's fascinating work because it's, it, it goes back to the principles of design that it's kind of like playing, it's kind of like playing solitaire. Yeah. You're kind of building a puzzle yourself and you're setting the rules of this puzzle, but you're also solving it as you go. So when you, when you design something, you kind of think about, you know, what the project or the design needs and you kind of like put and piece things together, but you create the rules of like how these things go together and you consider, you know, all those things. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Like, I think people listening to this episode are going to start looking at uh, (laughs) colors of brands and blue is one, right? So you see a lot of actually insurance companies, Geico, and you see some technology, you see, you see some financial institutions. I'm looking at some right now. I'm seeing, okay, Dell, Facebook, Ford, Hewlett-Packard, IBM, Lowe's, American Express. These are all all, all brands that utilize blue. And you better believe that it's not just because it's the CEO's favorite color. <laughs> yep, it that's, is that's correct. Yeah. deep strategy, right? Correct. Yes. I mean, I don't know if you if you heard of uh, the Lusher color test. Tell me about guy, it. Could, well, it's a guy called Max Lauscher. I think he was from Denmark. Uh, a couple of decades ago, he kind of wanted to take, you know, all of these concepts that Kandinsky had and color and kind of try and design a, 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 a psychology instrument around it. A, a psychology instrument is kind of like a test. Mm-hmm. So he wanted to make a test of personality based on your choices of color, basically by like reverse engineering the whole thing. Now, the whole thing was a little bit of a fluke because doing that without taking in mind the concept of, you know, the social things and sure. what color means to you cognitively, it's very hard to determine that. Yeah. But there was some really interesting work on that. Like for example, determining color temperatures, right? 
mm-hmm. and determining which colors are better for extroverts and which ones are better for introverts. So in, in the case of blue, that's very interesting because blue is a very introvert color. It's a very calm color. So it's it's very logical that it's going to be used by brands that kind of want to evoke that sense of calmness, security, yeah. stability on technology. So it works great. Your money and, you is know. safe with us. We're reliable, we things yeah, like that. Exactly. Yeah, makes sense. Exactly. Yeah. So you're talking about uh, the communities that you're, you know, you're reaching and how they, you know, how they respond to color. Obviously, the community that you're reaching most of the time is esports and gaming communities. Can you talk a little bit about how design is different in gaming than we see in other industries? Oh, it's a blast. It's amazing because the thing about gaming and esports, more so gaming than esports, is mm-hmm. that even though you are designing for, you know, a public there is more intent on what you design because there's a product that is heavily loaded with let's call it lore right sure you design content for a game you know you're thinking about you know what's inside the game what's the story of the game what's the look and feel of the game so all Hmm. those things are like more puzzle pieces that you kind of get to play with right yeah so designing for it is less abstract it's more literal but it's also more colorful in a way. I, I would say it's, it's, it's more fun, at least for me, it's more fun. Doing things that are too abstract way too often sometimes leaves you you know, a little bit tired mentally. Yeah. But yeah. I guess the abstract part would be in creating the game itself from nothing, like a, a video game developer role Correct. sort of thing, right? Yes. But then yes. when, yeah. you, when you're working with an established game or a league or something like that, You've got a lot already to work with, and then you're you're taking it from there. Correct. Yes. What is what is you know, in esports specifically, IP is a big issue, right? Because okay. um, unlike traditional sports, in traditional sports, Cisco, if you and I wanted to start a football league today, it could be John right. and Cisco's football league, and we could make money and start our league and all these things, but we could call, we could not call it major league soccer <laughs> for example right, right? cuz right, that ip yeah. is owned but in video games the publisher literally owns the ip of the game so if we wanted to start a league of legends league without the express written consent or the license from riot we're not able to do right. so is does the ip being restricted in that way make it more limiting or is it more clear cut cuz you know exactly what you can and can't do that's that's very interesting. Um, I would say it really depends on the game and the publisher, because every game is kind of a world of its own. Because it's different people, and they're gonna try to solve things differently, and they're gonna try to find a way to, you know, make content differently. When it comes to you know very mainstream games that are very popular, I would say it's a it's a double-edged sword because it's true that you know it's very limiting in a way. Take for example. Um, the TFT, the TFT scene, which is the team fight tactics scene from from League of Legends, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's been for a while trying to establish an esports scene, but they also are kind of like privatizing it for so to for the, to give it a word, and not right. letting people you know do their own tournaments and and whatnot or or, or sponsoring their service because obviously you can make you know your own tournament with it it's just not going to be an official thing and you're going to have a lot of issues finding partners to actually build it up right but also at the same time the fact that there's so much control over the scene allows the publisher to dissect you know every part of it 
and make sure it's up to standard. So it's just like the thing is that esports as a whole is a fairly you know new industry in the market, like you know compared to like other more established industries, like right. Well, actual sports. So it does need that kind of help from a well-established company to you know invest and put a you know good product out there. So I would say as a double-edged circus, there's a lot of responsibility on the publisher side to make sure that's a good product if they're going to like take it away from sure. people. That, if that makes sense. That does make sense. With the remaining time here, I want to take you to discuss one of your most well-known projects that when people hear this, they'll say, oh, I have seen that logo a million <laughs> times. It's awesome. But I had no idea that it was Cisco, you know, who worked on this. <laughs> and that is the G2 logo. So first... Oh, yeah. Tell us a little bit about how that opportunity came. We talked a little bit about the flashcards, but you know, yeah. talk about the emergence of that, and then talk a little bit about the uh, purpose behind the design. What was going through your mind, and how you brought it to the logo that we all know and love today? Well, the thing is that after working on the flashcards, that kind of like stirred up a little, a little bit the the the, the scene, and and people got interested in that. So I started like going up, you know, in, in different films projects regarding illegal films and whatnot. At one point, I got contacted by this company called Gamers Two. I was based on Spain, and Carlos Rodriguez was was leading it. They basically wanted to rebrand and kind of see if they could expand and, and become an international hit or whatever. Hmm. Um, maybe they made it. I don't know. You know, I'm just kidding. They're, they're huge right now. <laughs> yeah, um, I think they're doing okay. The, yeah, the thing is that they they actually had the concept of a logo before you know i got to design it i think i think actually carlos was the one that you know had the idea of having a samurai mask and then having the g2 on the front and they had a graphic designer kind of like make a rough um out of it um, mm -hmm. however they wanted to hire a graphic designer to um remake the logo kind of like clean it up uh, improve it or, or make it better basically and they also wanted someone that could um, make like a color version of it like a like a more 3d version of it because at that time flat logos were not that much in you know in vogue so yeah. they still wanted like something that was a little bit 3d ish i, I can show you later <laughs> the 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 yeah, we can. You can send us yeah. some pictures, and in, you know, in this episode, you know, we can post them during this oh, during perfect, this par yeah. portion. But yeah, keep going. I'm really interested to hear some of yeah. you know, listen to some um, of the strategy behind it. So, so the logo was basically sort of similar, like like the one we know now. It was like like a more compact kind of thing, but it was all gray. It was like basically like a, they wanted to like be grayscale, and I had idea of like putting some color into it. It was interesting because at the beginning they really did not like that idea they really wanted to go with the grayscale interesting but but then you know they kind of they they, they kind of thought about you know the orange that they had for a while and from then on is yeah it's it's what it is i also got to to work on some jersey designs and then social medias and whatnot this it was great it was a good time i fortunately didn't work for too long with them because the the schedule really did not quite, you know, match because at the time I was living, I think, in Panama, and they were like here in Spain, and making things work was a little bit complicated from afar. Yeah, it totally makes sense. And also, you know, people who may not be in the design industry may not understand that it's very common that a freelancer or a studio touches one piece of a project, like 
finalizing yes, the logo. That's correct. And then there's either other designers or they take it in-house to do other things with it. In fact, I've been involved with campaigns for big companies where we did one piece and then we saw so many pieces in store online that were based on that initial concept, but it's because they're they're spreading it out. They're working with a lot of different people. So this process is actually quite common that you're describing. That, that is true, actually, because one of the things that um, happens a lot when you're you know getting into freelance hall is that you have the expectation that you're going to have to do everything by yourself always, and mm-hmm. that's really not going to be the case. Like once you start getting into teams for bigger projects, you're going to be like, wow, how amazing it is to like work, you know, with an actual uh, team that you know supports you and can bounce ideas off, and it's it's great, like. The moment I worked with my first project manager was probably one of the most game-changing things working in, in the site. Like someone that could help me yeah. manage ideas and manage the project and, you know, set goals and, and limits and whatnot. It was amazing. And, you know, it's, absolutely. It's well, I, I, you know, I always say that business and art are opposites. If you think about an artist, an artist wants to take as much time as they possibly have to make something as good as they can possibly make it. But that takes a little lot of time which would take a lot of budget which you can go way over budget (laughs) if you continue to fiddle with something forever right and so so business is almost the opposite whereas it's more focused on the financial aspect and getting this project done within the hours so we can do the next one and things that nature so i would encourage any designers here listening you know collaborate with people who have complementary skill sets who aren't designers who can help you with the project planning or executing or communicating with the pl- the client and then on the flip side you know account executives project managers you know feel free to reach out to talented designers because they could very well have a need for somebody exactly like you and your uh, unique skill sets together will make you a very powerful solution for a lot of companies yeah i mean one one thing that i always think related to that and working with other people is that it's almost always better to fail together than succeed alone right mm. like it's, it's sure. when you work with people it always ideas are bound to clash and there's always going to be a moment where you know you disagree with other people and i have found that it's always almost better to just go with something that you know may fail or not as long as everyone is on board then try to antagonize everyone just because you know you're right on something right i think that 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 speaks a lot to the sense that there's a lot of things that are always going to be outside of your control especially when you're working with multiple clients and you know different types of you know media and whatnot and you never can assure a hundred percent or guarantee a hundred percent of success rate so failure is always inbound so you might as well fail Mm. with someone in your side someone that you can like learn and bounce feedback and experiences from and kind of like get up with then just kind of like file alone in a corner you know with no one to like kind of get support from and pick yourself up so it's it's been really refreshing working with with a big team and agency especially such talented people at AOE Creative, honestly. Yeah, that's very well said. I do want to, the last about 10 minutes that we have here, I want to hear something from you that I don't know a lot about yet. I was having a call with Simon, and he mentioned that you are a huge fan of tabletop games and that there's something you're working on. So what are you able to share? What are you excited to share about that? 
Well, right now it's like very work in progress, but hopefully we're going to have something tangible by the time um, this episode comes out. So hopefully we're really working right now on setting up the website and whatnot. But it's a, uh, a studio called Super Kaiju Nation. The whole idea of the studio is basically building a nation of Kaijus. Kaijus being, you know, really creative, fun people that, you know, kind of want to put something they're proud of outside. The idea is like make tabletop games that go a little bit further when it comes to their design and on what they're trying to, to accomplish and make. The first product we have in mind, it's called Burstville. And it's basically, I don't know how familiar you are with Monster Hunter. A but, little bit, yeah. Yeah, I'm familiar. But it's basically trying to capture the essence and the concept of Monster Hunter and kind of like further it a little bit. So it has mm. a lot of interesting things to it. You know, it's a deck builder, but it's also a, a dice game. Mm-hmm. And there's also like roadlight elements to it. It's it's very fun, very, very exciting. In and, what ways you know, are you going beyond Monster Hunter? Are there kind of some specifics that you can speak to? Sure. The the concept of Monster Hunter has always been like real interesting to me because it's the concept of having a cooperative group of people Mm-hmm. fighting a really big adversary an adversary that's going to be oftentimes bigger than them you know yeah so this concept of you know people together are bigger than the sum of its parts or whatever it's really intriguing to us and we kind of wanted to like replicate that but explore different themes in terms of like story and in terms of like you know who these characters are in terms of like what these monsters or you know these adversaries could be Right. So for this, for the first one, we're kind of like keeping things a little bit grounded, closer to Monster Hunter, just so people mm-hmm. can get the right context from it. But from then on, if the project ho- is hopefully, you know, um, successful, we want to make more sequels to it that you know just go absolutely crazy on that. Right. That's super cool. For people who are not super big into tabletop games, what is it about tabletop games that you're so passionate about and that you enjoy so much? it's the people dude honestly it's more so than the game itself it's it's you know sharing space with someone in the same table and trying to accomplish something against the person or with the person yeah um it's a very social experience and you know no matter what adventure you kind of like put yourself into it's always a fun time especially if you're like you know surrounded by the right type of people it's you know yeah well, and you have that direct in-person interaction, right? Like directly across from the table of somebody. I think that's huge. Yeah, yeah, correct. Like I think one thing that is that COVID taught us, or taught me anyway, was that there is no there there's no substitute for in-person interaction. We arguably over the last two years have never been more connected with people than than ever before. You know, this conversation is one example, right? You're in Spain right now. I'm in Dallas, Texas, and we're having this Zoom call. However, man, the first time, I remember the first event I went to once COVID started to ease up, just people that number one, I had known before, but hadn't seen in two years, or friends I had made over the last years, but had not seen in person. And it's just that incredible connection. And when you think about video games, I've heard it said that if there was ever a group of people who would not require in-person interaction, it would be gamers. And the reason is, you know, highly sophisticated with technology, very connected, like every night, right? We're on our console, we're on our PC, and we're communicating, we're talking, we're interacting with other people from around the country and around the world. However, when you think about passion, you think about participation, people getting together in groups, you think about these events like E3 and Comic-Con and where people are passionate and participating. And 
I think that goes very well in line with what you're expressing about your enjoyment of tabletop games. Is that right? Yep, that is absolutely correct. Like, video games are fantastic, and they're, like, a great tool to, like, bridging people together. But, you know, you can't replace human connection. And I don't think both things are antagonistic. I don't think both things are contrary to each other. I think they can play off of each other pretty well. Like, I'm one of my, you know, favorite things um, is to play Smash in someone else's house. You know, you just just go to a friend's house and just playing smash for a couple hours it's just fantastic experience always and you know this is the same person i'm gonna probably come back home and, and play an online game with and it's 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 great so absolutely i think i think people is key here yeah now let me ask you one last thing to run out this episode and what is that if there's something we didn't touch on or something you want people to look forward to from yourself and aoe creative what would that be <laughs> I guess if I if I wanted to like say like a last thing kind of like a I would, would be like a one more advice that I thought of you know talking with you about that I could not get to is that don't neglect your own brand. It's probably one of the one of the biggest mm. mistakes I've done. You know, good point. Um, yeah, in my career because I'm not huge on social media or on posting things that I do or keeping up with promoting myself. You know, that's it, probably the the weakest part of, of of my skill set i would say and it's very important that you kind of take care of that as much as you do for someone else's brand i think i think it's something that i i see other designers some, sometimes like having issues with and i think that's really important that's a good point if you have that independent personal identity that personal brand or or you're known as an artist or an expert in a, in a category number one if you move on from a brand or a brand moves on from you, you're not starting over from scratch, right? You're not just reliant uh-huh. upon the next brand's identity. It's, no, I'm Cisco. You know me. This is my brand. This is my work. And I work with such and such company, right? Correct. Is that what you're saying? Yes, absolutely. And, 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 and have fun with it. Like, it's your brand. Like, it should be you. You should, you know, get to know yourself through that and, and just... Just do something you're proud of, I would say. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I so, so appreciate your time joining us from Spain. What time is it over there right now, by the way? It's 8.30 p.m. Oh, that's but, not too bad. That's not too bad. Nah, I've had some people bad, in Australia yeah. wake up, or the Philippines wake up <laughs> around oh, 3 yeah. in the morning for me. <laughs> how can people, how can the audience follow you on social media in the ways that you would like them to? I would love people to follow at SuperCadunation on Twitter and at, at Burstful on Twitter. We're putting right now our website up for, for tabletop game, supercadunation.com. So that's something I'm very excited. I'm going to be like heavily focusing on from the upcoming month. So, so yeah, that's... Can you spell that out for the, the audience who's just listening? Yeah, sure. SuperCadunation, S-U-P-E-R, and then Kaiju, K-A-I-J... U and then nation and a t i o n dot com. If I'm if I'm Perfect. not mistaken, so yeah, no, that sounds right to me. So uh, I was in the spelling bee in fourth grade, so I'm pretty sure you're right. 
yeah perfect because english is not my main language i'm like uh, is it j is it g is it you know <laughs> wonderful well uh, i i so great. appreciate this i learned a lot from you today i know the audience got a great insight uh, into likewise the world of graphic design and esports aoe creative all you personally are doing cisco so thank you so much for joining me today on the dlc drop podcast uh, thanks to you john i was amazing time my pleasure Thank you for listening to the DLC Drop Podcast. This podcast is part of the Esports Futuri Podcast Network and produced by Innovation Media Enterprises. Make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast channel and leave us a review.